Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Today, I am with a dear friend, Jake Sassaville, who is a serial entrepreneur, author, podcaster, and TV producer. He is the CEO of Imaloa Institute in Costa Rica, which is how we met. He was the youngest host in late night TV history on ABC and the White House and Kaufman Foundation named him one of the most innovative entrepreneurs. He has built a wide-ranging and impactful career at the intersection of culture and consciousness. At 17, he learned early on about life's private struggles. His 13-year-old brother died of leukemia, and his father was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in the same year. As a result, Jake has been known to be a sensitive, steadfast, and resilient leader, often choosing pioneering paths instead of roads frequently traveled. Jake lives in Costa Rica, where he enjoys practicing Ashtanga yoga, which Do you really do that? We'll have to talk. Yeah, of course I do. It's the warrior yoga from India. Okay, I need video and proof. (laughs) I am going to send you video after this call. I'm going to tag you in a video on Instagram that's going to show me going in a headstand 50 pounds heavier than I am right now with no support of a wall. Okay, I'm excited to talk about that because you break every single limit, boundary, and barrier that is conceived in our brain. I love that. You also work very closely with Imaloa's leadership team, which is your retreat center. You like to travel to sit in tea ceremonies. I must join you for one of those and old TV shows from the 50s and 60s. <laughs> I do. I'm like a middle-aged housewife who lives in Kansas who enjoys Judge Judy and like talk shows from the 60s. I literally will watch old TV shows that were like formerly radio shows from like the 40s and 50s. I have no clue why I enjoy this, but I have fully started to identify. I, I've owned my weirdness. You know, I'm a little weird and that's okay. And I love that that of all the bio stuff that we sent you, Mary's cup of tea, that that's what you chose, what you chose to say the, 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 that I, yeah, I do. I do like TV shows from the fifties and sixties. Well, I like when people include a line in their bio that it could be as simple as like, Mary lives in Phoenix, Arizona with her rescue pit bull and fiance. Like, I think that just humanizes it so much amongst the like White House and Kaufman Foundation and just all of the life's trials, tribulations and trophies. I like the humanizing part of it. So I know you said you have no idea why you watch shows like that. But if you were to have an idea, what is the appeal? I know you have such a background in TV and producing, is there something that you just really enjoy? Or what is it about Judge Judy? Yeah, well, Judge Judy, I just like the way she deals with people. I think that so often we allow ourselves to get a pass or when we're in conversation. And I just like the way, I mean, it's ridiculous that I even like her. I think with TV shows from the 50s and 60s, I mean, obviously I haven't thought extensively about it because I didn't know that that's where you'd begin, but I love that this is where you're beginning. I think it's very interesting to watch something in an era where they had no clue when they were making it that people were going to see it almost 100 years later. Because back then, tape, like VHS tapes, old tapes were not even a thing. So like TV shows could not be taped. They just could be live. 
And so somehow these libraries, it's just very interesting to me to see people being interviewed or conversations happening where they thought that it was just a conversation that was going to air if it was a late night talk show like The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. They just thought that conversation was going to be seen once in 1962. They had no clue that Jake Sansevill was going to be spying on it on YouTube in like 2012. And I think it also felt like things were more meaningful back then. And I like to have meaningful conversations. That's why I was so flattered to come on Mary's Cup of Tea self-love podcast. And I think I'm the first male. Is that an accurate statement? That is an accurate statement. First man on the show. I'm very grateful for that, that you asked me. We were having a nice conversation about other things. And you said, oh, by the way, first man on my podcast. I said, yes, please. So yeah, I think anything with regards to media, new media, social media, TikTok, all these things, and also media from 100 years ago, I'm just interested in how people were communicating because I am so fascinated by the human condition and how people see themselves and how they portray themselves. And, you know. Yeah, as am I. Also, just to amend that statement, boyfriend has been on the podcast before. So I guess you're the second man on the show, but like the first male guest, like real guest. Thank you. <laughs> non, in, yeah, I yeah. get it. Non-stan. I'm the first non-stan. I got it. The first non-stan. <laughs> I also am fascinated by like how people communicate the human condition. And it's interesting the contrast to now where we expect everything to almost be permanent, like there's a sense of permanence and like what we do and what we create, what we put out there. A lot of life feels like a production and performance. And the reason why I was so excited to have you on the show is because even at the first ever retreat I hosted at Imaloa, I think you stayed for one of our workshops. And I had to, of course, ask all the girls because it's a women's retreat, like, hey, are we cool with Jake staying here? And everybody unanimously agreed that you are the epitome of a safe man. Mm. And I get goosebumps thinking about it because that's what's so special about you and also this interview and having you be like the first real male guest is because your vulnerability and openness and you're just a delight to be around. So thank you for coming on here. Yeah, of course. You know, speaking of being a safe man, I know we had a conversation around that the first time you were at Imaloa and something that you highlighted, which has become such a moment of pride now for everybody at Imaloa is you also said that this is the first time I believe you said, Mary, I talked to a lot of people, but I think it was you, that you acknowledged that this was the first time many of your girls, your attendees had been able to be served by men because mm. Imaloa has a lot of men just by function of like being in the jungle. And there's just a lot of men around. It's a heavy duty place to work. And retreats are often attended by well, at least for Imaloa, it's 60% female, obviously 100% female for you. And just noting that your young female attendees feel so safe being served by men because yeah. there are men hosts and men faculty team, and there's a, just a lot of men. And I think that that's really special. It's something that I say that you've said to other clients. And I think it's it's a beautiful statement. And it's where I think we can start going as a society is how do we cultivate these safe spaces when before they haven't been necessarily? Yeah. Yep. At retreats, especially, you know, you come to a women's self-love retreat and obviously expect everybody to be women. And then you're getting served hand and foot at Imaloa because it's such a luxurious experience by these gentle, open-hearted men who really, really care about you and also have no sexual pursuits. 
no like ulterior motives and it's extraordinary and i think it's it's one of those things that's like surprisingly healing like you'd think it would be like anxiety provoking to be like sitting and eating and you're getting served hand and foot by men and you thought it was going to be only women and you're like you think you might feel self-conscious but it is the exact opposite because it it heals your relationship with men and also with yourself and like how you are supposed to be treated so powerful it is yeah thanks for sharing that thank you for bringing that up when you brought it up tell our listeners how we met how you stalked me on the internet hunted me down and forced me to be your client and then friend (laughs) (laughs) wow that's like a great big tidal wave now that i have to like do i want to swim back out on it or do i want to ride it into the into the beach (laughs) now that we've talked about safe men (laughs) (laughs) so I mean, from the perspective, because I mean, I've met a lot of your clients and a lot of the folks that follow you, and I know that some of them are starting their own businesses. So when you're starting a business like I was with Imaloa, you know, this has become for those who maybe are listening, but who have not heard of Imaloa or know what you do there, Imaloa has become this gigantic kind of beacon of light in the world of retreat centers, which I never expected when I started it, because when I started it, I hadn't even been to a single retreat. Like a lot of people are like, how in the heck did you start like a leading edge retreat center without ever having been on a retreat? One of the ways that I did it is I really wanted to be different and not just go after the same old kind of hosts that host retreats, yoga and wellness, although we do have our fair share of that as well. So what we did as a company and my marketing and sales team, the first two years of MLO is we build lists of people we were interested in inviting. And we had different qualifications for those lists, different men's retreats, certainly yoga retreats, those who have spoken at TED, those who talk about self-love, just different subjects that I thought would be a great approach to, great approach to take to invite people that I really wanted to to learn from. And you were on one of those lists. I think you were still running around at college because I remember our first call before COVID and you're like, I'm just leaving class and da, 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 and I'm only 21 and I've hosted three retreats. I think you had hosted three up at that point, two in Bali, maybe one in San Diego, maybe right around there, or at least one in Bali and one in San Diego at that point. And you're like, and they sell out. And I'm like, mm-hmm wait a minute, she's doing sold out retreats multiple times a year. She's 21. She's calling me from her car going from like class to some other internship or whatever you were. I was like, who is this 21 year old? And at that point, I'm only like 33. So it's not like I'm like grandfather Jake here, but I'm like, so blown away. And I'm like texting my (laughs) assistant who found you. I'm like, did we do any intel on this? Is this girl for real? Like, what is this? And of course you were for real. And I have just totally fallen in love with what you stand for Behind what you stand for is also this amazing human being that I've started to get to know. But what you stand for, Mary, is so powerful. And I think, not to be like ridiculous about it, but I think when you look back in 10 years of what you've done in your early 20s for the hundreds of girls, obviously hundreds of thousands that you speak to every day on Instagram, but the hundreds of girls that have come on retreats, and I could be totally wrong, but I think you're only truly going to appreciate what you've done in 10 years when you're looking back at this, wherever you are in 10 years, because it's really, it's really remarkable. So that's how we met. And, you know, I kept a safe distance because I keep a safe distance from all my clients because I just want to like be professional. And like, I have a tendency to cross boundaries, not in an inappropriate way, but just in like, Hey, let's be friends. Cause I'm friendly with everybody. Right. But I realized that was not 
sustainable at Imaloa. Like we have hundreds of clients and the reputation now at Imaloa, and people will appreciate this perhaps, but it's like so many people want to have a friendship maybe with me or with Imaloa that me being discerning is actually the healthiest thing for myself and for the company, for the team, for the clients. But you know, there's something about Mary and her cup of tea. And, you know, you were so honest with me. I don't know how much you share on this podcast. So just like put your hand up if I'm saying too much, but just how you felt in the presence of other women who maybe were trying to compete with you, maybe even trying to take advantage of you when you were younger in terms of business, because you were so successful. Mm. And I guess I didn't have the exact experience. I was more in the television world when I was 21, but I had that feeling of like everyone trying to take advantage of me. I had a team of 30 people when I was 21. I think you said it in the intro, but I was the youngest host ever in late night TV on ABC after Jimmy Kimmel. Like I was on the air in front of 50 million people. We had a couple of million people a week watch and I had created it. So I wanted it. It's not like I was like, oh, damn, I didn't want this. But mm-hmm. a lot of people were reaching in on my side of the street. A lot of people were taking advantage financially. And so when I heard that with you, I was like, you know what? I don't give a shit. Am I able to say that on your show? Yes, you can say anything. I don't give a shit whether this girl signs or not at Imaloa. (laughs) I want her to know that she can call me anytime she wants so that she knows she has a safe space to be able to talk about all the shit that's going on in her business life. Because I didn't have that when I was 21. I got it as I got into my mid-20s. I learned how to surround myself with people. But it took time. So that's kind of how our relation. So I just, I just extended that hand and I didn't want anything from you. I was happy when you signed, but I was happier to be your friend, even if you chose not to come to Imaloa. Well, now I'm coming back to Imaloa for a third time. So best friends. <laughs> I think what happens, there's a few things I want to pick apart there. First of all is thank you so much for saying all that and showering me with love. I didn't realize that would be <laughs> where that would was headed, that question was headed. But I really appreciate it. And I think it highlights how, you know, that quote that says like, people overestimate what they can do in the short term. Like we set all these big New Year's resolutions and we're like, it's gonna be my year and I'm gonna do all these things. Da, da, da. And then we get upset at ourselves when we don't. But we also have a bias where we underestimate what we do in the long term. So if you look back, if you're listening to this and you look back and take inventory at everything you've accomplished over the past five, 10 years, it's actually quite phenomenal. And we need to give ourselves more credit for that as opposed to looking at like the past week and being like, oh, well, I had low energy and I didn't do much, you know? 2012, I was living in an expensive apartment that I couldn't afford. I was debting I was borrowing money from friends. I was trying to get my TV show on the air in Chicago. I was living in Chicago. I had no real friends. You know, all the things. And then look at where I am now. Costa Rica. I have a little bit of money. I have friends, like really genuine friends. I have an amazing team. I'm working the business that really fuels me, that I'm not desperate to try to... So it gives you the perspective of look what, where you were 10 years ago and what the person 10 years ago would have done to be the person that is today. The Jake of 2012, what he would have killed for, he would have killed for where Jake in 2022 is. And so now when I look at it from that perspective and I'm really present to it, it immediately lifts any gray clouds, Yeah, you know? 
Yeah, there's a trend going around on Instagram Reels. And I actually just made the video this morning. I'm going to post it after this call. And it's like the first clip is like me with my book. And I'm like, oh, I wish more people would buy the book. And then the second clip is little me feeling like so insecure. I'm like, I don't know, 12 years old. And it, and it says, wait, we wrote a book. <laughs> Love it. Right? Like that whole we. And, and if you go to that sound and like scroll through, it's so wholesome. Like there's so many people, first clip, they're so down on themselves, pressure. And then the second clip is like their inner child being like, wait. <laughs> I can't wait to see that, Mare. I you know? love that so much. By the way, that book that you want more people to buy got you a second book. <laughs> so am I allowed to say that? I don't know how much yes, the people yes. know. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I forget we talk all the time. So I'm like, did I just announce a book? Um, no. So it got you a second book. And so much, that, that's the other thing. It's this concept of infinite game theory. And it's like, there are some people out there that are playing a finite game that they have to win in order to feel successful. And then infinite game theory is just play the game to be able to keep playing the game. And mm -hmm. what you did with that book, that first book is... It sold what it sold, it did what it did, and it allowed you to write another book. You got another book deal. So you're kind of winning the game, but yeah. it all depends how you define the game that you're playing, you know? Yeah, you just, you never know one step, one turn different, and the whole trajectory of your life changes. It's constantly changing. It's actually quite like overwhelming and humbling to think about like how many limitless possibilities there are in this life. I wanted to ask you, you posted and you told me personally that you finished writing a book. Is yes. this your first? It's my second book. My first book was called Slightly Famous. It shows where my head was. How all revolutions start with a faceless figure in the crowd. I always felt kind of ignored, even though I was on this like success trajectory. And it's interesting, like it was an internal state because like I was on Chelsea Handler and NPR and my show was launching after Jimmy Kimmel and I was being invited to fancy schmancy pants, Hollywood parties and benefits. And so I wrote a book about it, about how I became the youngest host in late night TV and how I went bankrupt and quarter of a million dollars in the hole at 22 uh, and totally failed. And then how I found a spiritual practice from that. But that was the first book. And then this other book, did you want to talk about the book? Is that what? Yeah. I want to know what does it mean when you said, I think the subtitle is something along the lines of like the six stages of shattering the ego and finding God. I want to know what what that looks like and what God is, because that's a loaded word. And yeah, tell me what it's about. Yeah. So I have not been a stranger to controversy. My first show was very controversial. Mm -hmm. I was doing a reality show within a talk show in 2006 before or right as the Kardashians were starting and talk shows were talk shows and reality shows were reality shows, but I blended the two and I actually showed who it is I really was in front of everyone in America. And it wasn't uh, flattering, by the way. I mean, because I basically told my camera guys, don't ever stop filming. I don't care if you see me cursing out somebody. I don't care if you see me crying in the corner. Like, I want this to be as real. I want it to be more real than reality. So that obviously got a lot of things written about the show that weren't always flattering in any case. So God is a loaded word. I actually talk about that in the first part of the book. To me, it's no more loaded than love or universe. But for folks, it seems to still be a loaded word. And I'm all set with that. I'm okay with that. If it brings something up in somebody, great. 
And gosh, the title, Six Stages to Shattering Ego and Finding God. Well, I learned in my 12-step program that ego sometimes can also stand for edging God out. So E-G-O, edging God out. And I've been fascinated with ego and how it can really propel me, propel anybody to like great success, but it can also burn on the other side of the candle where it can also make you feel like you're not worthy of anything. And the six stages really chronicle my life from age 27, my Saturn return. For those who don't know in astrology, Saturn return is a big moment where According to astrology, it's one full rotation around the sun. Saturn has one full rotation around the sun. A lot of musicians historically have passed away during their 27th year of life. And whether that's connected to the astrology, I think it's interesting for folks to look into it. But basically, my whole life upended when I was 27. My house got washed away in Hurricane Sandy. My development deal with NBC at the time was taken away. My agents dropped me. My friends dropped me. I was ran out of money. And I had to face the music of what my life had been up to that point. And I had to move humbly, resistantly back in with my grandmother in her basement, in grandma's basement. And over the course of the next few years, I don't know how in-depth you want to go into this, but I started to recognize certain patterns that I had been living. So stage one in the six stages of shattering ego and finding God, stage one is I'm powerful because... I work hard. So it's all about where you get your power from. I'm powerful because I work hard. So in my teens, I worked really hard. I was a teenage magician. I did magic shows all over the country when I was like 13, 14, 15, 16. My brother had cancer. My parents were with him. And I just had to kind of raise myself. So I'm powerful because I work hard. Then the show, the TV show that I started, launched nationally. So then it moved to stage two. I'm powerful because... I'm successful. So I work hard and then I'm successful. And basically these two stages, I rinse, washed, and repeated throughout my 20s until I hit the rock bottom at 27. And that's when I got into a 12-step program. And I really started to admit that I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable. I was a chronic debtor and under earner, which means I debted a lot. I borrowed a lot of money from people and never paid them back. And it was really painful. I failed at businesses. I tried to get my power from working hard and then from showing everyone how successful I was. And it burned me out. And so then I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable. I was supposed to be in that basement in Lewiston, Maine for a month. And I was there for two years. It was a total reset of my life. My phone stopped ringing. Nobody wanted to do business with me. I had no money. My grandma was putting food in the fridge, thank God. And... It was a really lonely time. For the sake of clarity, Jake, can I ask, a 12-step program, from my understanding, isn't necessarily just alcoholics and addicts, right? Correct. So the 12-step that I was in was Debtors Anonymous and Under Earners Anonymous. So I was not in the beverage program. So I started going to meetings, and I started to realize, like, shit, I'm actually an addict. But everyone would look at me and my family and be like, you don't even drink alcohol because I stopped drinking when I was 21. I was like, yeah, but look at how my life is torn. Like I, I've been torn apart by life because of my compulsive debting. So addiction can be sex addiction, gambling addiction, food addiction. There's Overeaters Anonymous. It's a lot of addictions because all addiction is, is just trying to fill an agent once told me, said any addiction is just trying to fill the goddamn God-sized hole that was blown through us in childhood. 
And we just think that the addiction is going to fill it. The sex, the drugs, the rock and roll, the alcohol, the debt, debting and under-earning. Being helped by people. People are like, how is under-earning a compulsion? Well, first of all, it is. And there's something intoxicating about being helped by people, right? I was always being helped by people, not standing in my own power. Anyways, I won't go through the other three stages because I would love people to read the book when it comes out, but hitting that rock bottom and recognizing that I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable. I'll share one more stage, which was stage four. I really struggled with powerlessness because I said, how in the hell can I be such a creative person if I'm powerless? Like, why is this 12-step program telling me that I need to admit my powerlessness in step one? Like, how dare you? Like I'm in a basement, literally freezing because my grandmother's basement was cold and it was in the main winter. It's like, how dare you? And that's when I realized stage four is I admit my powerlessness, not because I'm powerless. I admit my powerlessness so that I may be empowered by higher power. And so I found what I call God in that basement. I started realizing that if I could listen to life, I could listen to the whispers if I wasn't so loud all the time. I'm loud, even still now, but I'm quiet a lot more than I'm loud because I know I have to listen to the whispers. And can I listen to the whispers enough to see God in the details? Can I remove myself from this equation? Can I stop trying to make what I want to happen happen? And can I let a power greater than myself flow through? This isn't religion. It's not even particularly spiritual. It's more of a practice. And it became a practice for me of taking action and turning the results over, taking action on what I want to create in my life. I feel like I've just doused everybody with a fire hose, but I get really excited talking about this stuff because Whenever I've shared it, like at a dinner at Imaloa or in a one-on-one conversation, like all the six stages, people's jaws are on the ground, not because my story is particularly compelling, although I think people enjoy it because it kind of has all the elements of like a fun story, but because they see themselves in it. They're like, oh yeah, these are my patterns. My pattern is working to create an identity for myself or my pattern is I'm anxious so that way people give me more attention. And I keep doing that and yet I am not creating different results in my life. Oh, maybe I need to look at how I'm powerless over my anxiety or my eating disorder or my depression. Maybe I need to look at my powerlessness in that in order that I may find love, find the universe, find God, whatever you want to call it, whatever's not going to trigger or upset you people. But finding that and realizing I am the center of the universe, but it's also not about me. So that's what the 12-step program and that basement really got me. And so I just decided to put it in a book. Initially, I was writing it, Mare, as an ebook because I was like, I'm not going to do a whole other book right now. Mm-hmm. But I've been thinking about this for three years. And when I tell you that I took 10 days to write an entire book, I put that whole book down in 10 days. Now, did I do an outline for it last year? Yeah. Have I talked a lot about it? Yeah. I've, I've done a lot of, I believe our word creates our world. But mm-hmm. I sat down and I wrote that damn thing in 10 days. And of course, there's an editing process and everything, but it's there. And it just, it feels wonderful. I'm so happy you asked about it. 
I believe it because, and that's something I get asked all the time. People are like, how did you publish a book? And I'm like, well, step one, write the damn book. Got to write the book. Put those words on the paper. Is that how you did it? You wrote the book before you got the deal? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I had a ebook and it sold probably like 1,500 copies. And one day Stan was out of town and I was just browsing the internet, looking at things. And I stumbled on this publisher and just decided to send him an email through their contact form. I was like, hey, I have this ebook. It's kind of a workbook. The problem I'm running into is that it's selling a lot, but like it's a 80-page PDF and that is wasting ink and paper in people's home printers. So I would love for this to be a physical thing. Is that something you're interested in? Huh. They replied and the whole like chapters five and six of The Gift of Self-Love was that ebook. I mean, it's obviously upgraded, but yeah. And then I worked around it and we created the whole outline, but I had something to show, you know, I had like, this is what I wrote or like, I didn't just have an idea. And I think a lot of people think like, oh, I wish I, somebody would pick up my idea and people are all about talking about their ideas. And that's great, I guess. But if somebody's telling me about an idea and there's nothing real, nothing to show. They're getting in their own way. They're really stuck. They're asking for how to make the money and find the publisher and do all these big glamorous things without having words written on the paper. The first thing I'm going to tell them is write the damn book. Hey, self-lovers. Before we continue on with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that my online course, Beyond Body, is currently on sale for over 75% off. Beyond Body is a four-week crash course program that I created for those who are done battling with food and body image struggles, and you want to learn how to find self-worth outside of your appearance. So this is, originally it was a four-week program, but now it's fully self-study and self-paced. And there's over 16 hours of lessons, including audio and video content. There's self-love workbooks to go with every section. There are four online retreat recordings, bonus guest interviews, and bonus guided meditations. So right now, Beyond Body is on sale for $47, and the sale will end on September 4th. So if you're interested and you want to check it out and sign up, you can go to maryscupoftea.com slash BB, like the letters beyond body, to take advantage of the sale and commit to your self-love journey stat. Again, this is kind of like a crash course. So if you do everything, all the tools that I offer in Beyond Body and you go through it in a month or two, you will have a better relationship with food and your body image. So again, that's maryscupoftea.com slash BB to take advantage of this giant sale. I hope to see you on the other side. That's a great thing. I mean, that's beautiful. That's even better than a lot of people in my age group when they've done books because the whole thing when I was your age, when I was your age, no, but 10 years ago, like people <laughs> that I was running around was like Tim Ferriss. He was writing, you know, we were friendly when he was writing the four-hour work week. And even he, with his agent, he was like writing outlines for what the book would be. Mm. And that's so interesting, right? Like a lot of people in my age group, when they were wanting a TV show, they would go and pitch a TV show rather than just do the damn TV show. And I was like, screw that. I'm going to go sell sponsors. I'm going to go get a half a million dollars from Ford and Overstock.com. 
they don't even know who I am, but I'm going to get the money for And then I'm going to go and produce the show that I want to produce. And then I'm going to put it on ABC. Everyone else was running around pitching TV shows. And I'm like, I don't know what you people are doing, but I'm producing the TV show. Like, I'm not waiting for someone to say yes to me. That's what you did with publishing Mary's Cup of Tea. That's great. Yeah, well, that's what you did before it was because like now you can have your own show. I have my own show and all it took is this microphone. I didn't even have this fancy microphone yeah. beforehand, right? So now like times have really changed. And I was actually talking to a friend of mine who has a really successful poetry book. It's called Self-Love Poetry for Thinkers and Feelers by Melody Godfred. She's a gem. And she was just telling me, I don't know if I'm allowed to share this, but in general, you can make a lot more money self-publishing. You make a lot more money self-producing. You make a lot more money working for yourself. You make a lot more money just doing the damn thing, managing it yourself, or at least hiring your own internal like assistants and everything once you grow, of course. But it's so much as unsexy as the idea is compared to TV, published, da 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 there are people that are making millions and millions of dollars and it's only because they believed in themselves and they're actually doing the damn thing, not just talking about it. But Jake, I want to make sure the message of the six stages of shattering ego doesn't get lost. Would you say that accepting your powerlessness is a form of, like if you were to put it in one word, is it like surrender? So this is one thing that I talk about is that all my life up until 27, I created things from a place of hustle. And by accepting, I mean, in the later stages, you learn to actually accept your own personal power. But what moved for me was I started to create from a place of surrender rather than hustle. That's exactly right. And I think that surrendering is the single hardest thing for anyone to do, especially in the media landscape and the constant barrage of messages. And it's really a shame. We can't be bored anymore. I notice even myself, like I go and I took TikTok off my phone because I was getting up at 4.30 a.m. just to watch TikTok. I'm like, you got a problem, dude. So I took that off my phone. But I still... Why were you getting up early, though? I was so stimulated because I was watching it the night before. Oh, and like, you would get up to watch obsessing. it again? I'd be like, oh my God, these people need to come on a retreat. Like there was this amazing girl, woman, uh, 19. She's Balin Dupree. I don't know if you know who she is. I'm obsessed with her. She's a TikTok star because of her Tourette's. And she's human. Oh yeah, I'm obsessed with her. Yes. She's humanized yes. Tourette's in a way like I've never seen. And I'm like... I adore her. 4.30 in the morning, I'm calling her agent. I'm like, my name is Jake Lansable. I know you don't know me, but I need to have Balin at Imaloa, please. Like, And my friend Amy, who you know, who also works at Imaloa, she's like, you need to take a chill pill with the TikTok. I was literally getting obsessed with people. They do something right in their algorithms. But I think being bored is okay. And I think recognizing that you can create from a place of surrender and not hustle. I don't need to make anything happen. I don't need to make anyone like me. I don't need to deal with people that are upset with me. I don't need to deal with their upset. I might need to deal with them. That's their side of the street. Like I'm over here on my side of the street and where people really, including myself, not as much anymore, where we really go upside down is we start thinking we need to take care of another person that we may or may not have upset. And based on what we've said or who it is we are, and I'm like, I got nothing going on about that. I don't want to even get close to being in that pattern because it's like being in the place of surrender and creating from that place has been so 
healthy for me. Like physically, mm-hmm. I'm healthier. Like I'm not worried about what people think because I know that I'll just deal with whatever's right in front of me mm. so that the past gets put in the past. But I can only do that by being in surrender on, on things. There are specific things that I talk about, like getting out of the results-based business and being in the action-taking business, just to take action like you did. You wrote the book. You're like, I'm selling the book. I'm going to call some publishers. I got out of that basement. So basically, the book talks about how I go literally, one day I'm living in a basement. The next day I moved to Maui, the most expensive island in the world. And I wake up the first day living on Maui. I'm like 29, two years in the basement, literally a basement in Maine, like an unfinished basement. And I walk outside my porch and I literally clear my eyes and I'm like, is that Oprah? I go from grandma's basement to Oprah's neighbor on Maui, like talk about a shift. But what became true for me is that creating from this place of surrender that I couldn't have possibly orchestrated that. And yet just by taking action and not worrying about the results and people are going to say, what is he talking about? You need to earn money to live. What is he talking about? I need a certain amount of likes on my Instagram. That's the journey, folks. Like that's for those listening, like that's your own personal journey, learning what this means for you. Just because I say it, you still need to investigate what truth is for yourself. It's not me telling you what truth is. I'm just sharing a story that, you know, what occurred to me. But independent investigation of truth is something that's really important, I think, as well. So yeah, surrender. Yeah, you're sharing the experience. And I also like it as like surrender as the antidote to codependency, because I think we get codependent on not just people and people's feelings and trying to manage them. And especially as type Ayers or especially adult children of alcoholic parents, or if you had a parent who was dependent on some kind of thing, substance, and you didn't get your needs met, then we learn codependents like learn to get their needs met through results right? The result of somebody feeling happy with them, the result of likes on social media. And I recently confessed to myself just two nights ago, listening to a podcast that I think I became subconsciously addicted to social media. So like you said, this might be way above people's heads. But what I'm hearing you say is that when you surrender and when you focus on the thing in front of you, dealing with the person, doing your work, pursuing what you want, you're committed to the action, to the thing in front of you, you're fully present there, but you're not necessarily married to where that's going to lead you in terms of like, especially as it pertains to like numbers or status or whatever that is. I love that you're talking about codependency, Mary, and I know you talk about it publicly because I think it's something that really impacts your audience, especially. It's exactly what I'm saying. Like when I applied for that house on Maui, I had no business to be applying for it. In fact, I was having a panic attack because I'm like, who do I think I am? Like I have a 400 credit score. This house is $5,000 a month. Like my podcast had just launched when I was in the basement. I launched a podcast and I started making 10 grand a month after six months of doing this podcast three times a week. Like insanity. But, you know, five businesses had failed before that. So the basement probably had really good audio quality, huh? You would think so. But guess what? Grandma didn't have internet. So you know where I had to do the podcast? Where? I had to go to a Dunkin' Donuts parking lot in my grandmother's 2002 Jetta. 
And I had my Oh, big, you had to sit in the car. I had to sit in the car because I had to steal the internet yeah. from Dunkin' Donuts. I've totally done that before. Because grandma didn't have any internet. Yeah. yeah. Genius. <laughs> I mean, people now, maybe it's okay. But in 2013, I had police, because then I would upload the show at three in the morning. Yeah. Because I had a lot of listeners in London for the London commute or in Europe, rather. And so I would upload it at three in the morning from the Dunkin' Donuts parking lot. Cops would literally come in behind me and be like, excuse me, uh, we got a call of a disturbance. I said, it's just me and my microphone officers. No problem here. It's fine. Nothing to look at here. It looks um, like you have like a big bong, but it's a microphone. It does. It really did. Cause it was like a blue, it was like, uh, you know, one of those, yeah. one of those microphones. Gosh, we're, 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 you had no no business applying for the house in Maui. And for- I, had no, I had no business. I even called my sponsor, my 12-step sponsor, Andrea, Gosh, I can only say her first name, obviously. Got to be careful about that. But she saved my life. And she said, never mind about whether or not you should be able to get it. That's the results-based business. Just submit the damn application. I said, yeah, but 400 credit score and how am I going to pay for this? And who am I thinking? Like it's 10,000. Just submit the damn application, she said, if that's what you want, if that's the next right action. And it got me out of my head. That's the ego on both sides of the candlestick. It tells me I'm the best thing since sliced bread. And it tells me I'm not worthy of the goodness and of the abundance. And so I just knew my ego was playing out a pattern. Anyways, I submitted the application. I got a call from the lovely Hawaiian property manager two weeks later. She's from Hawaii and Hawaiians have a very sing-songy way of speaking. So she said, Jake, it's Netta. And I said, hi, Netta. How are you? She's like, just wanted to let you know you could have the house if you want it. Bye. (laughs) And I literally was like having an existential crisis. Again, because this is like my new life of taking action, turning the results over. I'm like, this is not the way life works. Like, my life is not easy. Like, why is this working? So, I can have the house if I want it. What does that mean? <laughs> so I just kept taking action, right? It put me in that certain direction where I was like, okay, I'm going to take yeah. a little more action. I wasn't attached to moving to Maui, even though I was approved for the house. And that house, I would move to a month later with Oprah and Gail on the four by four down the road in their farm, seeing them, I was like, that house was the next right action because that's what started the foundation for Imaloa. So Mm. that's what I mean. And I'm glad you're drilling in on this a little bit, Mayor, because I think a lot of times people who talk about these spiritual ideas of like surrender and da-da-da, it's like, it feels so out there. But when you actually drill in and you're like, oh, okay, that's what it means. It means that even though you're approved for the house, your whole world isn't about moving to Maui yet. It's just the next right action of like, Mm. okay, what's my next right action? And what's my next right action? Keeps it very kind of sober. Keeps me right-sized. NRA is no longer the scary gun people. It is the next right action. (laughs) (laughs) Did you just make that up? I just made that up. That's good. That's yeah, good. you know, my my creative brain turns when I talk to people who inspire me. Uh, you better be careful about that NRA talk in the Arizona, though. Whoa. I know. <laughs> next thing you know, they take down the show. <laughs> we co-op the NRA acronym. Okay, Jake, tell me about your relationship with your body, your mm. self-image, your confidence, I know now you talk a lot about inner confidence, but I'm assuming that was a journey to learn. At the very beginning, we hinted to Ashtanga yoga and you're like, I was, I don't know, f- heavier, standing in my head, da, da, da. I want to have like a body image conversation from a man's perspective and like what that was like for you. 
you know, I already have a sense and I don't quite know what I'm about to say, but I already have a sense that it's going to free me from something. So thanks for asking the question. Okay. And again, I recognize that this is a story that I probably tell myself. Yeah. And the story is not always what happened. So I also understand that as well. When I was five, I was a cute little skinny kid. And then I got diagnosed with asthma. And my parents, thinking that it was the right thing to do because I was asthmatic, were pumping me with steroids. And that made me blow up like a balloon. And because I blew up and I didn't know why I was blowing up, what I mean by blowing up is like obviously gaining a tremendous amount of weight. I started then to deal with that by eating. So while the steroids might have just been excess water that I was retaining or whatever the impact of steroids is, I then started eating to deal with what I was seeing my body change. So it just became this kind of this pattern until when I was in the fifth grade, I'll never forget it because my parents were like, let's go work out. And I was like, I don't want to work out. You know, I want to watch daytime TV shows and then Oprah and da, 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 because I was a weird kid. I remember in fifth grade specifically, I worked out at a gym, Mr. Troutier. I was his last name. He owned the gym and he put me on the scale so that we could have a starting point. And in fifth grade, I guess I would have been 12. I was a pounds, which is, I think, very, I don't know what the average 12-year-old, whatever average is, but based on everyone's reaction in the room, I was like, oh, this is not good. <laughs> But it was based on everyone else's reaction in the room. So that just started the whole cycle for me of, of like having challenges with my weight and body image. I went to a Catholic school, but we had gym, obviously gym class. And I don't know if you had this where you went to school, but we had a mile run once a month. And I never wanted to do the mile run. And so I would play sick. I didn't care if anyone was caught on me or not. I just didn't want to be subjected to that. And then when playing sick stopped working, I researched other more serious diseases and I would give myself symptoms of meningitis in junior high school so that I didn't have to do the mile run and be seen for the pound kid that I was. I mean, I kind of am a little bit prideful thinking, wow, I think I convinced doctors and my parents that I actually had meningitis, like I was off school for 10 days. Like meningitis is not something to fool around or be funny about at all. But I'm sharing it so that you know the lengths that I went so that I didn't have to deal with myself. And then, of course, I'm in the closet. So I'm realizing in junior high and high school that I'm actually gay, but I'm in the closet till I'm 23. And then when I come out the closet, I've lost weight in my 20s because the TV show really got me to lose weight, actually. So like I slimmed down. A then I come out the closet and then I have a whole other image thing where I'm like, I am going to date the hottest men in New York. So I started dating models and athletes, African-American and Latino models and athletes. And it was, I think, weird for my friends because they were seeing me show up with like literally these models all this stuff. And then that became an obsession. But it wasn't because I was in love or that I even liked these people. It was because I was so disgusted with myself that I had to prove that I could do it. I had to prove that I could nab the hot one. And this turned into a very destructive 
pattern for me. And even when I was in grandma's basement at 27, like the fellas would come up on a Greyhound bus and I'd sneak them in the back door and grandma would never know. (laughs) (laughs) What's your grandma's name? I'm not even kidding. Lee's. Bless Lee's. Grandma Lee's. She passed away not too long ago, right? Yeah, she passed away this year. Maybe um, she lived till 82. I mean, the woman smoked all her life and lived to 82. I said, good one on your grandma. But <laughs> she was just the funnest woman. I mean, I had a lot of people up to Maine, but the fellas I snuck in through the back door, but they'd take a Greyhound bus, you know, because none of us had money in our mid-20s. None of us were Mary's cup of tea, okay? We had to take Greyhound buses, Mary. Um. <laughs> You're the one that, in preparation for this recording, I was, like, setting up your microphone. You're like, sorry, Mary, I've always had people do this for me. <laughs> it's true. I don't I'm know like, how to okay. do anything. Well, we set up our own microphones here at Mary's cup of tea. I, know. I'm like, I was a little bit, like, having anxiety about the microphone thing. Yeah, so... And I think it's still a journey for me. I mean, I'm still really, I use certain filters when I post my photos. Like I feel very uncomfortable sometimes. I remember I used to own a lot of real estate in Michigan. This was the worst in like middle of Michigan. I owned like a hundred apartments at one point for like three years. Um, I don't know what I was thinking, but I would go to Michigan to visit the tenants, see the buildings, whatever. And I remember one tenant came out and he's like, whoa, I said, what? You know, I was with like my realtor or whatever security. I think I hired security back then too, because I was like, I don't know where I am in Michigan. No, I didn't hire security. It's a joke. But he's like, whoa. I said, what? He's like, you're my landlord. I said, well, yeah. I mean, I, I own the building with my business partner. Yeah. He's like, oh no, I know who you are. You're Jake Sansville. Like I, I follow you on like Instagram. I said, oh, okay. And he said, but you look a lot better on Instagram than you do in person. I was like, okay, just gonna, because it's true, (laughs) because I like use certain filters. So there's still, there's humor that I use to deal with the way that I feel about myself. And yet, you know, Mary, I'm honest about that. I've never been honest about the filters, but I think it's obvious. And at the same time, like, I also practice Ashtanga yoga, which is the warrior yoga from India that I found in Maui. And I can do a headstand. And the whole yoga class did grasp, gasp when I went up in a headstand the first time because they thought this is not going to end well. And so I'm in this constant relationship trying to love my body, feeling like sometimes it's a losing battle, but then reminding myself that I'm actually really powerful. Like yoga reminds me that I can, I can get my undercarriage up in an upside down headstand and I can stay there for five minutes and drain my lymphs and feel amazing. And I can do it even without practicing. You're supposed to do the whole practice before you put yourself in a headstand. But like, sometimes I'll just go in a headstand because that's, what's going to make me feel confident about my body today. And I used to go to premieres in New York when I was in TV. I'd be running around New York at Beyonce premieres and this and that. And I wore Spanx. I wore a full body suit, man Spanx. Did I ever tell you this? No. (laughs) No. So I like would have Spanx on it. It would take me in seven inches everywhere. And then I could fit into clothes that I wanted to fit into. And I'd go do red carpets and I felt confident. But then I had this elastic... You know, and then I'd bring a guy home from the premiere 
And then we'd be like making out and I'd be like, I could have taken off my Spanx, but I can't tell them. So then I'd go in the bathroom and all of a sudden you'd hear these elastic there, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, I was a wreck. I was a total wreck trying to feel good about myself. And I'm less of a wreck these days trying to feel good about myself, but I'm still keenly aware that it's such a difficult journey for me even still. Even still, I have been working out every day. Not every day. That's a lie. Excuse me. Let me not lie on the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. I've been working out three to four times a week and walking 40 minutes every other day. And I lost at one point, but now the scale hasn't changed in three weeks. And I'm like, and I intermittent fast. I drink a lot of water. I'm like, what is wrong with me? So I still have this at 36 with a little bit of success, a little bit of cash, little bit of, you know, a little bit of a career. It still is something that affects me. So it's all part of the journey. Yeah, it's interesting because we talked about like surrender in terms of results, but a lot of diet culture has made it seem like taking a 40-minute walk is for the purpose of attaining a certain result, not for the act in and of itself. Yeah, you just gave me an aha here, which is that I need to apply what I applied to my life, to my body. Like for some reason in my life, and maybe because it's so that I could survive as a kid, I've detached what life is, like my life, everything I do in my life, make love, make business, make friendships, make travel to my body. Like it's still separate. And like just you saying like, oh yeah, I should just be taking three 40-minute walks a week and working out three times a week because it feels fucking good. Not because I'm trying to attain a result. Like, where's the action in turning the result over there? I'm not. I am so results-oriented. And I pass it off with humor and whatever. But deep down, like, I want to see the fucking scale and it's not working and I don't understand. Mm. So... Yeah. yeah, it's so difficult. And especially because, like you said, it starts so early on in your childhood with the steroids. And I'm no doctor, but I'm assuming that just something happened, whether it's with that medication or genetically or just a combination of like habits and weight cycling and everything, which we know the statistics show leads to like an increased set point amongst all of those things. It's so difficult for me as your friend who loves you dearly and who wants you to just be like satisfied and content and so happy in your body standing on your head in all its glory, you know, as it is like that beauty that I see in you. But I can imagine it's it's so hard, especially because from my experience, at least like the bigger people in my life, they are the healthiest eaters, the most disciplined, like yeah. exercising all the time and trying so hard and just genuinely doing all the right quote things Mm. but perhaps you know all bodies come in different shapes and sizes and that's that's just that yeah I mean I think accepting that is really key yeah that's so interesting to me just to hear you say that because also Imaloa 
is a 22-acre campus, and everybody who comes to my Costa Rica retreat, especially those who get placed lower down on the mountain in a certain accommodation, they are huffing and puffing by the time they come up for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and all of our workshops, and it is intense. Plus, there's a waterfall, which is a hike down and obviously back up. There's so much to explore in the jungle. I've watched you... I think I have actually seen you do a headstand. Aside from that, I've watched you run around the jungle. I've watched you be so like active and athletic and like doing these things that I can't do. Like I would be so far behind you on a hike and then yet seeing you be so hard on yourself and your body. When I actually built a Maloa, that's how I lost when I got to Costa Rica. I started becoming or eating more vegan which is not for everybody, but it was for me at the time. And I ran around those 22 acres and it's steep. And it's one of the things you mentioned that you see me as athletic. I mean, I about gave myself a heart attack recently. I went to Imaloa's farm. We have like an organic farm. And I went with some investors and some friends from Imaloa to, to see this farm. It's about an hour and a half away from the campus. And literally when I tell you the hike is like this, it's like people who are listening, it's so steep. And the truck broke down, the farmer's truck. So I had to walk it. And I was like, all my insecurities come up, even though I know I can move my body. And one of my investors is like a world-class triathlete. And like, he like bikes a hundred miles a day just for fun. And I'm hiking so fast. And I don't even notice myself. And Eric, person I'm referencing is behind me. And he's like, Jake, what's the rush? What are you doing? And I realized like, this is my way of keeping up. Like, I think I'm going to fall so far behind. I don't think I'm worthy enough to be able to be whatever, like able to hike. So I do it 10 times faster and I almost give myself a coronary, you know, my heart. And it's like, it's moments like that. It's moments like conversations like these where I know the healing is starting Mm -hmm. because I'm able to finally be out loud, valued and validated for that part of me, not the part of me that everyone knows and can easily Google. And it's spaces like these that you create, often at your own detriment, Mary's cup of tea, because I see some of the messages you get. I mean, I'm not on your DMs, but like we talk about some of the things and like you posted someone who was negative about something. And I started searching them on Instagram and I'm like, whoa, whoa, you can't do this, Jake. Because I was like about to give him a piece of my mind. Like, who are you to talk to <laughs> oh my, my Mary's God, cup I of tea you. like that? But then I'm like, no, no, wait a minute. You got to stop. You got to stop, Jake. You got to just, you know, I forget sometimes that I'm not like <laughs> the middle-aged housewife in Maine, but I have a reputation. Um, <laughs> but it's like you put yourself out there to teach people this, to give people a safe space. And look, I know I'm in the minority as a 36-year-old man who follows you. It's fine. But I'm still getting a whole lot from it. And certainly this being able to have a one-on-one conversation where someone doesn't try to make it better. I think that's what people who struggle with the things that Mm. you and I were just talking about. This is not about making it better. I don't need someone to believe me, my life is good. And my mental health is actually pretty good too. But this is a part that is... challenge for me. And I don't need people to try to make it better. So the fact that you've created a space where you're not trying to make it better, but you're just allowing people to be, I think the healing begins here. Wow. That means so much to me. Um, You just gave me an aha moment because I think that's the big reason why I stopped one-on-one coaching or even just like change the, the nature of my content. A lot of it was like, let me fix you. 
kind of stuff. And why I love hosting retreats so much is because it's a space and it's just the space. And you taught me one thing that, did you get this from Oprah? But the thing where like, if somebody comes to you with a problem and they're going at it and they're complaining to you, your response is something to the likes of, oh, is that, is that so? Oh, really? Thich Nhat Hanh, actually, who was a monk that used to own a retreat center in France. Thich Nhat Hanh used to say that if someone comes to you with something, your response can be, and is that so? And then they can go on and on and on and on and on and on, and then you can just respond, and is that so? And eventually, people will stop. But yeah, yeah, that that's where it comes from. It's empowering because it, it, like, you're listening with your full heart and you're totally present. You're not trying to fix them because often, as much as we think otherwise, it's actually quite disempowering when somebody is very, very invested. And counterintuitively, it just helps so much to just let people do their thing and then serve as that mirror and let them be in their space. That's what I really love about retreats. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for sharing your body image journey. Oh, you mentioned about how like you were trekking up this mountain and almost trying to like prove something. I had a mentor who used to tell me overcompensation perpetuates deficit. And I remember I had a friend in high school who was a bigger girl and she used to was she was like phenomenal at makeup. And she said something to me about how like, well, fat girls have to have their makeup on because fat girls have to be pretty and things like that, that these messages that we believe about how we have to overcompensate or like, there's so many different ways that we do this in life. So I just, I wanted to highlight that for our listeners to think about where they might be trying to overcompensate for just the way that they exist, whether it's like trying to prove yourself with work or body stuff or anything appearance related or relationship things where you're just like constantly trying to like fix people. And I catch myself doing it with words. Like I'm constantly trying to like find the perfect words that are going to resonate. And then I add more words to the mix, just like I'm doing right now, thinking that if I keep on talking, then it'll be amazing. So I, yeah, I I tell myself that often overcompensation perpetuates your deficit. And there's also wisdom in the silence too, like toward the end of my podcast when, because I did 300 episodes of mine and hopefully I'll start doing it again regularly, definitely inspired by this experience of what's possible when two people just sit down and talk. But one of the hardest things that I used to have to deal with is silence. And it's amazing what a guest will say or a person in a conversation will say when you just allow it to be silent. I'm not suggesting we do that here and now. I'm just saying it is ama- it's an amazing technique to see what else is on the tip of the tongue. I really appreciate you. <laughs> I was trying to do it. I can't do it. <laughs> I know. You did it. You did it. And it did let me say that I really appreciate you, which is that I do. Oh, I love you, Jake. Thank you so much for your time and just generous energy and serving us with your story. Yeah, thanks for letting it be heard. 
Hey self-lovers, just one more thing before we farewell. If you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple or rate the show on Spotify. Your feedback helps the podcast grow, and as someone whose love language is words of affirmation, your kind words mean the world to me. If you're listening on Apple, you can just scroll all the way down on the podcast homepage and at the bottom, you will see a place to leave a review. And if you're listening on Spotify on the show's homepage, there will be a little star and clicking that star will let you send in your rating. Thank you so much for listening and helping me spread the gift of self-love. And speaking of the gift of self-love, make sure you pick up my book, which is available in stores and online worldwide. Just go to maryscupoftea.com slash book, and you'll find all the links to order the gift of self-love, whether that's on Amazon, Walmart, Target, small indie bookstores, and wherever else books are sold. Again, thank you so much for your endless support. Please always remember that you are loved. I love you. And I will talk to you next time on the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Toodaloo!